Hear God's word. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. We all tell stories. We tell stories about our own lives. Uh, We tell stories about uh, our relationships, our family. Uh, we, we tell stories about our countries, uh, we tell stories about our churches, we all tell stories, and stories uh, function as a kind of architecture for our lives. We live within various stories. My grandfather did this, my grandmother did this, I, I uh, lived in this part of the country, and then I moved to this kind of the country, I, I studied this when I was this age, and now I want to do this, and stories have a, a past, a present, and a future, and they have a, 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 a structure to them, an archetype, and studies have been done showing that there are the various, some think there are six or five, sort of standard stories that, that cultures tell about themselves, the, the story of, of rags uh, to riches, and then riches to rags, and there are these Different kind of stories we all tell about our own lives and tell about our own, our, our own cultures. And the, the, the stories, as I say, function as a bit like a sort of architecture, a structure around which, uh, it, it, within which we live. Uh, they frame 
how we interpret data. Someone tells you Jesus, but then you, you put it within your story about what you've heard about Jesus from Sunday school, from your parents, from, from uh, various things you've read. It, it fits within a, an architecture, a structure, a, a storyline. And depending upon what that storyline is, it will affect how you interpret what has been said about a particular point of data. And those storylines, those architectures, those archetypal structures can be good or bad or poor or encouraging or discouraging or uplifting or putting people down. Or they, can, they can work well or work poorly, but we all tell stories. And as I say, they function a little bit like architecture. And architecture, of course, can be done well, can be done poorly too. I was amused to discover that one of the, one of the most uh, sort of you know, funny uh, architecture fails was of, a, of a, a residential home called St. Bennett's in 1972 that decided, the residence's home, decided that they wanted to put a fence around the home. And so they hired construction people to put the fence around the home and presumably they'd had architectural drawings and all this thing to construct this, this uh, fence or a wall or something like that. But uh, they needed a new uh, barrier around this St. Bennett's residential home. And in due course, the construction people turned up and they built the fence, they built the wall, they built the barrier, and they did everything right, only to discover they made one huge error. There was no door. And so people looked out and saw all the, all the trucks and the, you know, it was in England actually, so they would have called them lorries, but uh, to translate for you, that's the same as a truck, um, within the walls. There was an architecture fail. And sometimes stories can be a bit like that. You feel you've hit a dead end. There's no way out. There's a certain story that's been put upon your life. And you're just stuck within it. And these architecture, these stories can be encouraging, can be motivating. I, I love architecture. As some of you know, I spent a lot of time in Cambridge. And one of the architectural uh, buildings that I got to know there because I studied history as an undergraduate uh, was the, uh, the History Library at Cambridge, which is a fantastic building. It's a piece of modern architecture. I love it. It's built like an open book. But someone didn't think carefully enough about the amount of glass in that building. And so when you're in this particular library in, uh, in Cambridge, you're studying, you're next to this huge expanse of glass with, with light streaming into you. Yes, it does sometimes. Uh, the sun does sometimes shine in Cambridge in England. But and, and anyway, it's like a greenhouse. So you're sitting there reading some obscure 15th century madrigal or something like that. And and you're sweating from the heat, like pouring. Like Someone didn't think it through carefully enough. Or the, the, the university library at Cambridge, which is famous for being functional and extremely ugly, um, and to such an extent that some people think it actually inspired J.R.R. Tolkien's dark tower in The Lord of the Rings. So the structure, physically, mentally with the stories that we tell, shapes how we look at life. It's the world within which we live, the house in which we interpret pieces of data. And this gospel of Mark is intended to give us a story, a framework, an architecture, a beginning, which is more than just simply a start. It's a frame, how we look at life where we put the story of our own lives. Who is this Jesus? How should I respond to him? What difference should he make to my life? 
how do we tell the story of our own lives, the story of Jesus, if we're a Christian, or if we're investigating Christianity and we want to find out who this guy is and what the Bible says about him, what is the story? And so over the next few weeks or so, we're going to be looking at fairly big chunks of Mark's gospel to see the story, the framework, so that you can put your own lives within that story. And this morning, the story that Mark is telling in the first 20 verses is all around time. What he's saying is that something new is happening. It's a new time. He's saying that the desert times or the wilderness times have finished. God's people, you need to realize that. And there's good times or good news times or gospel times are coming. And therefore, live within that story. Live a certain kind of way. And of course, that's, that particular way of shaping the story is important, isn't it? Because some of us feel like we are living in wilderness times or desert times. We feel like our lives don't make sense, and so we feel like we're stuck and we need to get out of it. Others are looking for purpose, like I know that I should follow Jesus, I believe in him, but what is, meant to, what is the, the, the basic task that I've been given? Either way, this story here about wilderness times having finished and gospel times being here helps us figure out how we fit into this particular story and what then we should be doing and how we can live above our circumstances. But we all have doubts. We all feel like we're in the wilderness sometimes. We all feel like life doesn't make sense sometimes. And here comes a story that's saying that you can live above the circumstances of your lives. There's a bigger story and you're invited to be a part of it. And of course, it's, it's just brilliant and beautiful the way that the, the, the gospel story is told here. So let me try and shape it for us. And, and, and basically, the, the story here is, is around three characters that, that, that Mark, as he tells the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, shapes for us. There's John, of course, the, the prophetic character, and then there's Jesus himself. And then, there's the, then really, it's the disciples, it's us who have been invited into the story, you see. And this, uh, 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 this Mark's gospel... Of course, it's the beginning of the, of the gospel itself. And he tells us in his verse, verse, what it's going to be about. He says this is the beginning of the gospel, or the good news, the announcement. Uh, the gospel is an announcement of a king and his new kingdom. That's what the word gospel means. We'll, we'll think a bit more about that as we go through it because it will emerge again later in, in the story. About Jesus who is the Christ, which isn't a last name, it means Messiah, anointed one, or the king, who is the Son of God. And that issue of the divinity of Jesus, the Son of God, appears over and over again. And it's a key theme for Mark's gospel. You find in verse 11, the voice from heaven says about Jesus, you are my beloved Son. He's the Son of God, the Son of of the Father, the voice from heaven says, you're my beloved son. And then over and over again, it, the, the theme of Jesus' divinity, of his sonship is explored. And we're invited in to search it out and to figure out what we would say about that. Who do we think Jesus is? Until finally, at the end of the gospel, the Roman centurion looks at the cross where Jesus, of course, is being crucified. And the Roman centurion sees the way he's dying. And the centurion says, the pagan centurion, not, not the Pharisee, 
not the, not the one with all the biblical background from the Old Testament, not the religious uh, Old Testament uh, Jew, not the Israelite, not a, yet a part of God's people. The Roman centurion says, surely son of God. That's the answer, and Mark is inviting us into that journey, into that story, that we might come to the same answer too, and therefore live our lives in response to it, to have a mission, to live within that story. And as I say, there are three parts of this initial part of the narrative uh, that Mark introduces. First, there's John, and uh, of course this goes to about verse 8. John is, he appears, verse 4, as if out of nowhere, but of course he's prophesied in the Old Testament that he would come. Uh, we looked at Isaiah 40 a few weeks, uh, a few months or so ago at College Church, and we looked at how he, the John the Baptist is prophesied in the Old Testament. He comes, he's baptizing where? In the wilderness. What is being said is God's people need a new exodus. They're in the wilderness, and he calls them out into the wilderness, symbolically saying, you're still in the wilderness. You haven't arrived. Yes, you've come back from exile, but really spiritually, there's a new exodus that you need. And so, of course, he baptizes them where? In the Jordan, because they have to go through the Jordan, uh, symbolically, to enter this new time, the promised land. And they have to turn from their sins. And John then, the fulfillment of the scriptures, preaches that he's not the end point. Verse 7, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Pointing, of course, to Jesus. And there we have it. Every preacher, listen, Every preacher is, in a sense, meant to be a bit like John the Baptist. Not wearing, you know, camel's hair or eating wild honey. Not literalistically. But the task of John the Baptist to preach from the Scriptures pointing to Jesus is the preacher's task. Preachers are not there to pontificate about the economy. Preachers are not there to give, you know, really good life advice. Though, you know, obviously I have lots of good life advice I could give you. Our task is to rest upon the Scriptures and point people to Jesus. That's what we're meant to be doing. That's what we will do as a church. I, uh, I researched into this. It's a story that has been told by preachers a little bit. And as you know, sometimes preachers tell anecdotes that need to be verified as to whether they're accurate enough. And I did as much research on it as I could, taking it down to a, a Polish pastor who was given an honorary doctorate in 1984 at a Christian college in America who told the story about Warsaw and Poland. So as far as I can figure out at this point, it's, a, it's not only a good story, it's a true story. So in Warsaw, in Poland, after the Second World War, the, the, the city had been devastated, the buildings had been flattened, a bit like some of those cities that we see in our pictures now in Ukraine, destroyed. But in Warsaw, after the Second World War, amazingly, one wall, 
or at least one part of one wall, of the Bible Society in Warsaw was left standing and there had been an epigram, an inscription on that wall which was still visible with all the devastation of the city and it said on that wall still standing, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. You can rely upon this. It's an anchor. Whatever kind of destruction there might be, you can rely upon this. You can live above your circumstances because you have the word of God pointing to Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what we're going to do here at College Church. And so there's John. And then there's Jesus. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized. Stop there. Jesus was baptized. We're so familiar with these gospel stories. We sort of blip over these things. It's sort of, we think we know what they're saying because we've sort of vaguely heard it. We don't give it enough attention. In our mind, we're sort of thinking, spoiler alert, the main hero will die and rise again. And, of course, Jesus was baptized because we've, we've heard it before. But think about it. What was this baptism? It was the baptism of John for the repentance of sins. And Jesus is baptized? He's not a sinner. He doesn't need to repent. Why is he baptized? Because right at the beginning of the gospel... The work of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the crucified one, is being mapped out in the story. He was baptized as a sinner, though he is not one. For sins, though he had none. For you. He's a substitute. And Mark emphasizes this theme. When he comes out of the water, the heavens are torn open, the spirit descends on him like a dove. Why like a dove? Almost certainly it's reflecting the, the dove of the story of Noah, which is the symbol of peace. There's now peace between God and us because of the work of Jesus. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. For Jesus is affirmed by God the Father as the Son of God, but then in Jesus, by faith, we too may hear you are my beloved, and I'm pleased with you. Christian, God is pleased with you. And uh, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Why? Because he is doing cosmic battle. He's in the wilderness for 40 days, for the 40 years that God's people were in the wilderness, and yet this time the true Son of God will not sin, will do everything right, and he wins the cosmic battle against Satan. And then he's with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. At the end of that cosmic battle, there's this symbolic moment when there is peace, the dove. And even creation is being reconciled.
gospel times are here. I wonder what time your story of your life is saying it is. Some years ago, a French uh, scientist called Michel Sifre conducted a rather unusual experiment. He decided to put himself in a cave with no light, no way of telling the time for two months to see how the biorhythms of the human body would interpret the passage of time. He, took a ju- he kept a journal. He, 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 he thought he'd been asleep one time for just a few hours and discovered that actually he'd been asleep for 36 hours. He, the, the passage of time began to mean nothing to him. And finally, when he was rescued by those who had joined in, in doing this rather unusual experiment, they took him out on September the 20th. But according to Michel Seif's journal, it was only August the 19th. One sometimes wonders whether Michel Seifert might have got to the same point rather quicker by just spending an afternoon in line at the DMV. (laughs) What time is it on your clock? I don't mean like, you know, is the service almost over? Are these bad times? Or good times? Or gospel times. For Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel, the good news, the announcement, the Hebrew background to this is an announcement of good news that the, the, uh, the, the king is coming. The, the, the pagan background to this is the, is the announcement that the, 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 the emperor has been born and acclaimed and ascended a son of God. And Mark is saying and Jesus is saying there is a real gospel. It's not a political gospel. It's not a cultural gospel. It's not a psychological gospel. Those are all fake and false gospels. But there is a gospel. And we live in gospel times. And the wilderness times have gone. God's people. Your story is above and beyond wilderness. If it means anything to be a Christian, it means that we have a bigger and better story. And you can live within that. Whatever the circumstances of our lives may be. And that's what this story is inviting us into. And so Jesus, when he comes out of the wilderness, he calls his first disciples. Verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. Simon, of course, later to be called Peter. And he says, follow me. And then he sees uh, James and uh, the son of Zebedee and John. And he calls them to follow him as well. So here we have it. The wilderness times are gone. The gospel times are here. Therefore, follow (laughs) and fish. Follow by this commitment to Jesus. Look, these are... You don't need to be perfect to come to Jesus. All you need to do is be willing. The gospel of Jesus is for broken people like me and you. But will you follow him? We all have our own struggles. But will you follow him? He has arrived and he is 
to return one day, but now the gospel is being proclaimed that you might enter into that story. Will you follow him with your whole life? Like Simon and Andrew and James and John and Jane and Elizabeth. Will you follow him? Will you follow him in the community of the church? Here is the beginning of the church meeting around Jesus, these early disciples. That's what church is. That's all it is. It's of all kinds of different ages. Uh, There are other communities that you can be a part of. But this is church. Follow him in the life of the church. And fish. Purpose. Whether it's getting involved with some of the ministries of the church here. Whether it's using your business for Jesus. Whether it's reaching out to your neighbors for Jesus. Fishing. not, Not faking it. Not forcing it. But walking alongside those that God has providentially put in your life and inviting them to follow too. Because gospel times are here. I was very amazed um, this week to come across uh, the story of uh, a uh, nine-year-old girl who was the subject of a very famous photograph back in uh, the 1970s or so. She was called the Napalm Girl because she was running, screaming from a bomb with terrible burns. And it, it, it won the Pulitzer Prize, that photograph. It's a very famous... If you're into photographic journalism, you would know what I was talking about. It's a very famous photograph. And I, like I suppose most people, sort of lost track and assumed that this person had died and that sort of thing. But no... She's still alive. She was interviewed recently in the Times, the London Times. She's 59. Some years ago, she was invited to church by a neighbor. (laughs) The neighbor, uh, this this, uh, woman said, kept on telling her that she was loved. She couldn't believe it. Finally, one Christmas in church, she opened her heart and accepted the love of Jesus. Here's what she says now about her life. She says, I am no longer a victim of war. The wilderness times have gone. She's a Christian, a real Christian. She says, I'm a friend, a helper, an agent of peace. The Spirit has descended on her like a dove. She's following. 
The time on the clock of her story has now changed. She's no longer in wilderness time. She's in gospel times. And that could be you. That could be your family. May it be in the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do ask, Lord, that these gospel times would, by your Spirit, thrive among us. We pray, Lord, that you draw people to yourself in this city and in this community. We pray, Lord, that we as a church would be effective for, for proclaiming your gospel through your word. We pray that all our ministries, as they start this fall, would be blessed by you. We pray for those who are visiting, that they would sense the power of your Spirit and your presence, Jesus, here among us, as we are your disciples. And we pray these things for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen.